0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
1: Hey everyone, this is Chris, co-host of your favorite podcast, No Compromise. It's uh, been a little while, but anyway, I am checking back in with a couple quick tidbits. First, if you didn't hear, No Compromise won a Pulitzer Prize for audio reporting. So, if you were an early listener, you can tell all your friends that you have excellent taste. Second, if you listen to NPR's Morning Edition or All Things Considered, you probably already know that Lisa has been hard at work reporting on all matters disinformation and misinformation. Check it out. She's been kicking serious butt. But I have been working on another podcast. It's called Taking Cover. Now, I'm not the host on this one. I'm working more behind the scenes, but I can say it's a pretty wild story about a fatal mistake and cover up that happened during the Iraq War. And like No Compromise, it eventually spins off in a direction that's unexpected. So far, we have released three episodes of Taking Cover this is episode one. So give it a listen. If you like it, go check out the rest of the series in the Embedded feed. And if you really like it, or you just want to show your support for our work, you can pay three bucks a month for Embedded Plus, which gives you early access and an ad-free listening experience. Okay, here's episode one of Taking Cover.
2: Before we get started, you should know that this podcast contains graphic depictions of war, and we're talking to Marines, so there's a lot of cursing. Camp Pendleton
3: in Southern California is the West Coast home of the United States Marine Corps, 200 square miles of hills and wetlands and long stretches of beach just outside San Diego. On its edge, There's a sharp hill covered with scrub trees and bushes that overlooks the Pacific Ocean. It's called Horno Ridge. And over the last 20 years, it's become a place of pilgrimage where Marines sweat and suffer to honor their dead. The hike up is steep and rocky with two false summits and at the top, a small field of crosses and memorials. Dozens of them, of all sizes. Some pieced together from tree branches or lumber. Some weighing hundreds of pounds. Each one carried up by Marines and sailors. Scott Radetzky has climbed Horno Ridge many times. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of keepsakes and mementos.
4: I mean, everything from a coin to a wedding ring to... You know, a medal, a purple heart, to, I don't know, bottles of liquor, you know, that were, were um, uh, poured out, you know, a drink for their, their fallen comrade.
3: Rodetsky is a retired chaplain. He doesn't like the messy piles of empty bottles and cans, but he knows they're only part of what people leave behind on the ridge. More important are the unseen burdens, the sorrow, the sadness.
4: The anger, regret, ooh, here's a big word, shame. When someone dies and you don't, um, the grief that's there, survivor's guilt. And hopefully the lingering that takes place on the hill is part of that, that you can move past the horrific things that you've maybe seen or done.
2: Chaplain Radetsky got the Hilltop Memorial started. In the spring of 2003, his unit lost a Marine in Iraq, killed just minutes after the invasion began. Months later, those Marines were back at Pendleton, preparing for yet another deployment to Iraq. And that death, it still hung over them. One day, the chaplain gets an idea. He finds some sections of old telephone pole and bolts them together. The Marines already trained on the ridge. He thought maybe the pain and suffering of carrying this massive cross up the trail could create a bond, and they'd leave the cross itself on top as a memorial. So Rudetsky and six others, two officers, two riflemen, and two medics, become the first to do just that. They carry the cross on their shoulders up until almost the end. The final stretch is so steep they have to push it, drag it, a foot or two at a time until they reach the top. And they're the ones who inspired this field of crosses, which grows year after year as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan drag on.
3: In time, three of the seven men who carried and pushed that first cross up the trail in the summer of 2003 would themselves memorialized on Horner Ridge. One was killed in a firefight in Baghdad, another by a roadside bomb. And that last Marine,
2: his death has always been kind of a mystery. A mystery we've spent the last three years investigating, not just because of this one man, others died with him, but because As we started to find out, it was all part of a greater tragedy, covered up by powerful people looking to keep the American public and even the families of those who died from hearing the truth. It's a story about mistakes, faulty assumptions, miscalculations, lies. This is Taking Cover from NPR. I'm Tom Bowman. And I'm Graham Smith. This is the story of
3: our efforts to learn about the lives lost and why families and even the men who were badly wounded still don't know the truth about what happened to them on the worst day of their lives.
5: See the hole in the, yeah, the building? It's like a square. And when
6: they launched that mortar, it hit, boom, I mean, one out of a million shot.
7: We were sitting on those stairs, and he looked really pale, and he looked shaken, and I don't think he'd slept, and he said, Doc, I think I fucked up, and... I was like, well, what, what did you fuck up? And he's like, well, I can't
0: really talk about it, but I think I fucked up. I think I fucked up.
5: They're hiding something for a reason, and they don't... There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. There's got to be some. Why are they keeping it such Why did they keep it a secret to begin with? The fact that nobody has said anything concrete, no paperwork, nothing, and I'm just now finding out there was even an investigation, that's kind of un- unsettling. I don't care. So why he didn't tell us? Why he lied to us? That's I
2: want to know. Well, for us, this whole thing started with a tip, a stunning and disturbing allegation from a trusted source. How's it going? Good. All good. That was a final security check now I'm in the building itself. The building. That's what people here call the Pentagon. I've worked here covering the U.S. military for the last 25 years. Walking along the E-ring. Typical morning, you see people in the hallway. How things in China? That
0: report came out, I learned from
6: NPR.
2: I met run into a colonel I knew in Afghanistan, or a general visiting from his overseas command, who can tell me what's really going on. But there are some things, well, people just don't want to talk about in the building. So I might call them at home at night, or we might meet up at a bar. Which is what happened one night at a whiskey bar in D.C. Actually, this very bar, a guy who spent a lot of time in Iraq, told me a story very few people knew. He told me that early in the Iraq War, there'd been this tragedy. U.S. Marines had dropped a mortar or a rocket on their own people. That's what they call friendly fire. Now, in this case, he said one Marine was killed and another seriously wounded. Friendly fire deaths, they happen. They happen in every war throughout history. That's not what made his story shocking. Here's the thing. He said that the Marine brass had actually covered it up, bearing the truth about this terrible incident because he said the son of a powerful politician was involved in the screw-up.
3: Tom came to me the next day, asked if
2: I could help dig on this tip he'd just gotten. Since 9-11, Graham and I have spent years reporting from combat zones. We've gone on dozens of patrols. Dug foxholes together. And come under attack while embedded with Marines and soldiers. He's working on the investigations team now, and it felt like we could team up again. The source who gave me this tip, he was, you know, a little fuzzy on the details said this Marine had been killed in the the spring of 2004 in Fallujah. The Iraq War, if you lived through it, covered it, maybe
3: fought there, feels like it was just yesterday, but this is 20 years ago now, and we know for some folks this is ancient history. Maybe you were five when it kicked off, so very basics. The U.S. invaded at the beginning of 2003, and within a few weeks defeated the Iraqi army though they never found any of the weapons of mass destruction that were the whole reason for going in. Chemical, biological, maybe nuclear. They found nothing. Still, the Americans occupied the country. They were running things. They figured they'd won. What they didn't realize, a new war was just beginning. Because a lot of Iraqis hated the American occupiers. They felt humiliated, brutalized. And this city of Fallujah, it's where the whole nature of the war started to change. It became the center of an insurgency that America
2: would fight to this day, really. So was there a friendly fire incident there? There was a major battle there in 2004 in the spring. Didn't last long, just a couple of weeks in April. And these days, there are pretty good online lists of casualties. So we did what anybody would do quick google search. It was a deadly month both for Iraqis and for the U.S. Nearly 150 American troops were killed, 27 of them in Fallujah. That narrowed things down a bit, but still none were listed as friendly fire. Nothing seemed to fit. For weeks we poured through small-town newspaper obituaries and press releases the Pentagon sends out whenever a service member is killed. Finally, we got a break.
3: It was on one of those memorial web pages, like the ones funeral homes set up for family and friends to leave condolences. Only this site is for fallen Marines. And the entries for two different Marines killed on the same day, Robert Zurheid and Brad Shooter, actually told a different story from the military press releases. Each of the two pages said the Marine was killed by friendly fire rather than hostile, like the military reported. And they were both from the same unit, Echo Company 2nd Battalion 1st Marine Division, or as the Marines would say, Echo 2-1. And another thing caught our attention, a comment from someone named Corporal Gomez Perez. He wrote, April 12th is always on my mind, and every time I think about it, I just get
2: mad. Man, it's bullshit what happened. Now, the initial tip was one dead, one wounded, but here we have two Marines from the same unit who died on the same day. Was this the friendly fire? We filed a records request with the Marines looking for any information about this incident. Was there an investigation? Now, this is where things get weird. It usually takes months to get an answer from the government, but here, after just a couple of weeks, we got a response. A thorough search was made, the letter said. No records on file. No records? It made no sense. Look, the military investigates and documents everything, whether it's a major screw-up or just someone losing a piece of gear. Two Marines killed? Even if it wasn't friendly fire, there should be some record of the day. We filed an appeal asking them to look again. It was incredibly frustrating. But you know what? There are other ways. I started asking around at the Pentagon, calling up both active duty and retired officers, especially those who served in Iraq. Have you guys ever heard about this? Who was involved? We'll
3: hear more about that later. With Tom working the brass, I went looking for grunts, the guys who served in Echo Company. I dug through books about the fight in Fallujah, including one called No True Glory. I knew the unit, Echo 2-1, and the names of the Marines who died, plus a date, April 12th. But across 378 pages, there is no mention of a friendly fire incident that day or any other. In fact, no mention of April 12th at all. It was as if nothing had happened that day in Fallujah. But I did find one clue. That Corporal Gomez Perez from the Memorial webpage, there's a picture of him in the center of this book, staring into the camera, half his shoulder torn away by a bullet. The book says he was with Echo 2-1. Between that and the comment, April 12th is always on my mind and every time I think about it I just get mad, I figured that Corporal, Carlos Gomez Perez, must have been with Shooter and Zerheide when they were killed. I found a number and called him. He was on the road. He works in the cannabis industry now. We set up a time to talk the next day. That's ahead on Taking Cover from NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit s dot com slash npr and save an additional $200.
5: Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Squarespace. Measure your end-to-end online performance with powerful website and seller analytics. Get insights on top traffic sources, understand how your reach is growing, and more. Use code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their
1: lives.
6: What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10
5: years ago?
1: Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop
5: <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, Carlos. Uh, good morning. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. It's good to hear you, man. Turns out Carlos was part of Echo Company for the 2003 invasion, too. So he served with Jose Gutierrez. He was the Marine memorialized with that first cross on Horno Ridge. They were pretty good friends. And like Gutierrez, Carlos says he first came to America
6: illegally. I grew up in Mexico City. I grew up in Mexico City, and when I was nine, I ran across the border to get to San Diego. We got caught. So I got got pushing He kept
2: trying. Out. And looking back now, it's clear from those trips across the desert that Carlos was already driven by character traits that the Marines championed.
6: I called it my first mission, honestly. After being in the Marine Corps, I called it my first mission because basically I was always in the rear, not because I couldn't keep up, but to ensure that everybody in front of me was making, it, making its way forward.
2: He finally made it. Grew up undocumented, not far from Camp Pendleton, And as soon as he turned 18, he became a U.S. resident. Basically, just so he could join the Marines. I
6: was told that the Marine Corps was the hardest branch of the military. So I'm like, "Mm, let's see if that's true. I'd read in that book, No True
3: Glory, about the battle where Carlos had been wounded and how he was recognized for his valor that April.
6: So, uh, forgive my ignorance, did you get a silver star? Yes. Uh, I was awarded the silver star... And I didn't know what Silver Star was, so I had to Google it before I received it.
2: It's kind of strange he had to Google it because the Silver Star is a big deal, just two steps below the Medal of Honor. It recognizes conspicuous gallantry. That means ignoring the danger, putting your life on the line to help fellow Marines in combat.
3: When Carlos got home, he was pretty messed up.
2: Not just his shoulder, but
6: mentally. Sure enough... April comes around, unintentionally, my mindset goes somewhere else. My body reacts differently, emotion-wise. But it's now, it's been so long that my son feels the same way. April, April rolls around, his whole demeanor changed. He's been in treatment
3: for PTSD, and he's getting better. But Carlos says his family suffered with
6: him. In what sense does it fit that my son's 14 years old and I tell him, I wish I would have died in Iraq rather than come back. Not because I don't love you. Not because I'm um, because not because you don't mean the world to me. Because if I would have died, it would have ended right there.
3: We talked about the incident, April twelfth, that whole month fighting in Fallujah, and how it still lingers for him almost 20 years later.
2: Carlos, he's still the kind of Marine who keeps tabs on his buddies looking to make sure everybody makes it forward. And over the next two years, he helped us to get in touch with some of them, including Ben Leota, Doc Leota, as they call him. Ben was traveling in South America with his girlfriend, a musician,
3: when I reached him. I set up a time to talk, and a week later, I called him from a studio here at NPR. Thanks, Stu. I hear a ring. Hello. Hello. Hey, Ben. Yes, Graham here. Graham. Yep. Yeah, how are you doing, Graham? Okay. Hey, thank you so much. He was much. in the I'm Navy, sure. a uh, early battlefield early. medic for the Marines. Okay. He said he'd the been Marines. there when the explosion took place. You were corpsman, right? Yeah. Can you tell me, uh, well, would you mind just telling me your, your name and, uh, you know, where you're from? Just the sort of basics so I can make sure I don't screw that well, up.
7: real quick before we get into it. Yeah. I just wanted to ask sure. a couple questions myself.
3: Absolutely. W- what is the
7: purpose of your documentary?
3: Well, I'll tell you the truth. Right now, I'm still kind of trying to... I told him about a clue I'd found. Echo Company's captain, Doug Zembeck, wrote a letter to his wife on April 12, 2004. He wrote, One of my Marines called in a mortar mission. The round landed short, killed two of my Marines. Zembeck's wife published the letter years later in a book about their relationship and his death. But from the letter... It's clear the company commander knew immediately it was friendly fire. Um, and, and one of the things specifically that came out was how long it had taken to notify the families in this incident. Um, so it's about that. Yeah. So that's, where, that's uh, where I'm at.
4: Yeah. I mean, I
7: will say this. I, I am always down for the truth to, to come out. I mean, I think we both understand like, the climate today is insane. And I'm... I, I'm not looking to be a part of a smear campaign that's like, mentally make the Marines look bad. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, believe me. If your goal is truth, I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah,
3: I mean, I've spent a lot of time with Marines over in Afghanistan. I went in uh, 2009 with 2-8 out of Lejeune on the whole, like, insert into the Helmand River Valley and, you know, oh, dropped wow. in with them on the helicopters. So you've been through For the old shit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let me preface this whole thing by saying I, you know, like even after talking to Carlos, I, you know, I was like back in the zone for like a week. And my wife was like, why are you being such a bitch? And, <laughs> you know, because it's
7: been me know, this whole week waiting for
3: this call. Yeah, because it it, it it, you can't not uh, respond to it on those levels. And, I, and so thank you. No, I appreciate that.
7: And no problem.
3: Um, Yeah. All right. So let's let's do this officially.
7: My name and where I'm from.
2: Yeah.
7: Uh, My name is Benjamin Lyota. I'm originally from kind of all over New York.
2: Ben Lyota was just one of the men we talked with as we tried to unravel this mystery about Echo Company. If we're going to get to the bottom of the allegation about a cover-up, we first had to understand more about what happened on the ground. Bill Skiles was there. He's a retired sergeant major. Invited us to his house in Virginia, but an hour south of DC.
3: You have oh, I heard Buffalo. You, just before we even uh, get into this stuff, I uh, we are obviously in your marine room or something. What do you call this
4: place? It's my marine room.
3: So some of these are, are replicas
4: of weapons. Well, yeah, these these are these are real. He pours these us a couple of whiskeys
2: <laughs>
3: and settles down into a leather recliner. Yes.
2: Um, So expectations going. We never heard of the city. Skiles was the right-hand man to company commander Doug Zembeck. I remember Zembeck going on a map in the hallway in in Camp Horno. We're going
4: to a place called Fallujah, or what the hell? They got back to Iraq in March. In our compound, it was called Camp Volturno, and we renamed it Camp Baharia, a Navy term. We called it Camp Diarrhea. Of course we did. (laughs) Terrible place. So here we are, a battalion of Marines going to Fallujah. Remember President Bush said, as of what, May of o three, Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. The war's over.
6: In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies
2: have prevailed. <laughs> so, okay, yay. So we're Mission gonna... accomplished.
4: Yeah. Anyway, so we go up there, and the expectations of all the Marines, I mean, we actually played football. I remember... We spent more
3: than five hours with Bill Skiles that night. Between what he told us, Carlos, and Ben, and dozens of others, plus audio recorded in the city that month, we've pieced together this account of their arrival in Fallujah and the days leading up to the April 12th explosion that killed Brad Shooter and Rob Zurheide. This is Taking Cover from NPR. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale.
4: Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way, stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.
0: There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.
6: We had just gotten the brief, the new commander had some, you know, words, wisdom, and we were doing all the Mattis, uh,
2: the Mad Dog-isms uh, because he was our division commander. Brigadier General James Mattis. Years later, Mattis served as defense secretary under Trump, but Iraq is where he made his reputation, became an icon in the Marine Corps with nicknames like Mad Dog, St. Mattis. He's very quotable. Um, no no greater friend, no worse enemy. We're here with the Velvet Glove approach. It's late March. The Marines are in Fallujah to take over from the Army. You will go in there and win the hearts and minds.
6: you got to be there almost like as police officers. I'm like, mm, okay, fine. We'll do that. It was, it was something far, far from the truth.
5: We thought we were moving in for, like, security and stability. You know, win
2: the hearts and minds of the people. And it seemed like that was just not something the locals in Fallujah were interested in. One reason? the heavy-handed tactics of the 82nd Airborne, the Army unit they were replacing.
7: I mean, I looked it up, and everything online said it was a hornet's nest. You know, you read everything that the 82nd Airborne went through over there, and, uh, we still were, like, more, like, we just didn't know what to expect. And then we got there and started asking the Army how everything was, and it seemed like the Army didn't really know what they were doing. And, uh... Like, I don't mean to say that just to talk crap about the branches, but from their own stories, they were like, no, we just drive through and like, don't even stop when we hit somebody. And, like, we just shoot when we're shot at without even knowing what we're shooting at. And it's just like, "Oh, wow, well, I think
4: there's a reason they don't like you. <laughs> All I know is we prepared for hugging and kissing and, and love and, and, and just spreading the, the gift of, of giving. Battle was thought about a little bit. But interesting to see through satellite imagery during April how many were coming in, crossing the Euphrates to come at us.
6: The great jihad was coming. So then you have the insurgents coming Insurgents became recruiters. Oh, I saw the army shut up your house. I saw the army shoot your hospitals. I saw the army shoot your schools. I saw the army destroy your vehicle, which was your only means of work. Come help us. Get back at them. The Army at that time was the best recruiters for the combat that was about to happen.
3: You know, in one way, the Army tactics, riding in their vehicles rather than patrolling
4: on foot, worked. For them, they took few casualties. They had one dead, ten wounded. So they're for, there for six months, seven months, one dead, ten wounded. And this is important to remember that because the Marines have landed
6: now. We're back. And all of our arrogance, we're back. Okay. But this time, you, you can feel the difference. The first time in Iraq, I'm walking through the streets in patrol, and people are smiling. They're saying, go push, thumbs up, Mr. Mr., we love you, whatever. Second time around, going to the streets of Luja, that demeanor was different. I remember having pins, and we had soccer balls that weren't inflated.
4: I couldn't find air. So we throw some soccer balls that were inflated. I remember the kid
6: flipping me off because I gave him a soccer ball without air. You could see hate in the people's eyes. There's no little kids running to us this year. What the hell's going on?
2: The day the Marines took over, there was a mortar attack at Fallujah's City Hall. Now, a mortar, if you're not familiar, it's kind of like a grenade, but shaped like a bowling pin. Recently, we watched some Marines train, launching them out of metal tubes set on tripods.
6: When ready, come on.
2: The round rises high up into the sky and drops down onto the target with a deafening explosion.
4: Boom, a mortar hit here. Then, okay, it's kind of like, welcome, Marine Corps. Welcome back. Thirteen Americans are wounded.
3: Skiles and Captain Zembek help evacuate the casualties, get soaked
4: in blood. Once we got back, Zembek and I walked to the chow hall with the same camis we had. He was a lot more red. I remember the company looking at us, going, this is not fucking Kansas anymore.
2: April is fast approaching, and that hearts and minds thing, that's not going well. The day after that mortar attack, the Marines lose their first man. An insurgent fires a rocket-propelled grenade at a Marine truck. RPG hit the... The Marine vehicle, dead stopped. RPG got him and killed him.
4: Next day, General Mattis, personally, they killed a Marine. Send in the Marines. I can't blame somebody for getting revenge. You know, you don't fuck with the Marine Corps. We're back, and how dare you? So send a company in. We gave everyone a chance to to, to get out.
7: And we basically we dropped leaflets and did loudspeakers and we were like, if you, there's a fight coming, if you don't want to fight, get the fuck out of the city right now. Um, and while people were streaming out, fighters were streaming in.
5: Like, we were um, going through this open, like, courtyard thing. And I always thought something was off. We're walking down and we turn to the right and I'll never forget this little Iraqi girl came out and she kept pointing down like, she's pointing down the street and I mean, I'm looking at her and I'm like, alright, either she's warning us or a signal. So it's one of the two.
3: Wow. That's yeah. kind of a brave little girl right
5: there if she was warning you. Yeah. I guess she was warning us because as soon as we turned the corner to the left, Shots came down from the roof, everything, and one of them hit Elrod. And they almost got Doc Watt because he was he got against the wall and all the bullets started spraying up on the side. And I'm like, all right, so it
7: was all a video game to me to be honest. It was <laughs> until someone got shot, it was all surreal. I do remember that. I remember once Eric Elrod got hit. It all stopped being a game to me. It all stopped being interesting. Huh. Yeah. And I started to just get my head right, take it in the
5: right way.
2: The Marine offensive was having an effect. Two days went by. It was evil.
4: No more mosques, no more prayers. I mean, we went in the city and killed a couple of them, or or more, who do first blood. They killed a Marine. General Mattis, go in there and teach them a lesson. We didn't teach anybody a lesson.
3: It turns out the insurgency was waiting for a chance to teach the Americans a lesson.
1: We're going to begin with Iraq this evening. Four American civilians were killed there today. And as sometimes happens, the cameras were there for the gruesome aftermath. Here's ABC's John Berman.
4: Hello. On the streets of Fallujah, the brutal attack was met with celebration. We are from Fallujah, they chanted. This is our work. Witnesses say the two SUVs were ambushed as they drove through town. It
2: isn't just ABC. The mangled and charred remains of Blackwater contractors hanging off a bridge flash across TV screens around the world. A clear message from the insurgents. They didn't kill him. They killed them
4: 20 times over. They, they, they couldn't get to us, so they wanted to take it out in those four.
2: This is the last thing the White House needs. Almost a year after mission accomplished, troops still haven't found any evidence of the alleged weapons of mass destruction. The insurgency is growing stronger. Support for the war back home is dropping. But these are Americans dismembered, burned. The White House doubles down. The Marines are ordered to clear Fallujah.
7: Some of us had recently returned from a, a patrol, like
2: outside the wire a little bit. And I remember uh, just over the loudspeaker announcement was made you know, all Marines report back to your company areas.
3: Hearts and minds, forget it. General Mattis is forced to drop the velvet glove. The mission now search and destroy. That night, Captain Zembek jumps up on the hood of a truck to motivate the men. It's pitch black, but you see a figure.
4: (laughs) The, the, The line of Fallujah, there he is. Marines, this is our Okinawa. This is our Tet Offensive. This is our Saipan. This is our time in history. Pretty cool. And he goes, we're fighting for, look to your left and right... Those are your brothers, you're fighting for him. Don't you ever disrespect or dishonor the American flag and what we stand for throughout our history of battle in the Marine Corps. And he finishes with this. May the dogs of Fallujah
2: eat hearty off our dead enemy. May the dogs of Fallujah eat hearty off our dead enemies.
1: You're already
2: by now it's the early hours of April 1st.
5: That's when the
2: Hornets Nest started.
5: Oh no, that was that was full on we're taking over the city and the nine. Like we tried to be nice, now it's we gotta do what we came here to do. And that's where we just started going through. We didn't even allow the idea of
4: what this city is going to look like after the fact influence how we uh, fought. And what I mean by that is if you needed to put a tank main gun round into a building, you put a tank main gun round into the building. You know, if we needed to blow down trees to clear our fields of fire, we'd blow down trees to clear our fields of fire.
7: Every day it was kicking indoors, house to house, clearing operations, sometimes with fights, and a lot of times it would be the house next door would have some some bad guys in it, and then the Marines would assault towards that house, and the, the bad guys would pack up and move on down the block some, you know. Um, it was, it was kind of like chasing a ghost, almost.
4: So yeah, we, we were in the fight. We had the enemy on their
3: heels. For more than a week, the men of Echo Company and about 3,000 other Marines pushed into Fallujah, dense neighborhoods of concrete buildings normally housing 280,000 people.
8: The U.S. military says some insurgents are using children to spot targets for them and deliberately firing from heavily populated areas inside Fallujah.
3: The Al Jazeera TV network sends out brutal images of hospitals crowded with dead and wounded, some of them women and children. Other networks run the footage, too.
8: Hospitals are full and doctors say they're running out of medical supplies. Iraqis claim hundreds of civilians have been killed or wounded
2: in the last four days. It's too dangerous to bury the dead. Iraqi politicians threaten to resign if the Americans don't stop the assault. That would be a disaster because the Americans are just about to hand responsibility for governing the country over to their Iraqi allies. So the White House orders the Marines to stop.
6: We've been going good for about a week, and we told to, stop, to cease fire. Like, what? Yeah, cease fire. We don't going to push forward anymore? No, we can't. Okay, fine. Cease fire.
4: And, and just to be clear, you know, we talk about a ceasefire. Ceasefire was in effect for U.S. forces, but the insurgents didn't have that same order. And so we were in gunfights on a, on a daily basis throughout. Well, the running, jo- the running joke was that there was a pause in combat operations, and eventually the enemy guys had agreed that they were going
7: to turn their weapons in and stop fighting. It was just that the joke was that they were going to turn in all their ammo first, because they never stopped. They never paused. They just kept shooting at us all the damn time.
6: We get to a, uh, to a schoolhouse. We stop there. And now we're in the schoolhouse. That's when uh, CNN got embedded with us. Tomasz Etzler from CNN.
8: So what happened, you know, in the morning they took us to the school. They were kind of sticking out from the line of the houses which the Marines occupied behind them.
2: Now, Marines are quick to tell you. In combat, they move, shoot, and communicate. But now, they're forced to hunker down at this schoolhouse.
7: Think of, like, uh, rectangular-shaped building, and there's an open courtyard, so there wasn't no roof over that area. I know we were digging in for the long haul, because they had me dig a, a shitter. And then we, you know, sandbags around the windows, like typical sandbags around the entrances. So we were just kind of like, hey, man, let's block this up just in case. Like, you know, mortars were being launched. We knew mortars were being launched.
4: So...
5: Th- Go for a couple of days. Tell me, tell me about the twelfth. I mean, it's it started as a normal day. We like everybody wakes up. We're smoking and joking, and then uh, so we have our first we
6: have our first watch in the morning. My team. So we got word that we were gonna get attacked at night. So I'm like, okay. Yeah,
8: still, kind of a very sporadic gunfight going on, and at one point, and it was already April twelfth. The school was hit by an uh, RPG, but the RPG hit the corner of the school. You know, it shook the whole school, it shook, you know it made a bit noise. So
7: that morning was the first time I remember getting blown up. I was in a window in that schoolhouse, bent over to pick something up, sat back up, and some asshole shot an RPG at the window. Um, rang my bell pretty good.
8: Mm -hmm. they
7: wouldn't let me sleep for like 12 hours Robert came off post and this kid, instead of sleeping he sat there for 8 hours and just stared at me making sure I was, I mean literally just sat there staring at me, smoking
5: cigarettes making sure I was okay
2: The Robert he's talking about that's Robert Zurheide he'd be dead by nightfall
7: Zirheide was the nicest person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> I, I don't know how he became a United States Marine. But <laughs> <laughs> he was honestly the nicest person I've ever met in my fucking life. Like, the dude just had a heart of gold. Um, and t- Unless you played cards, and he cheated <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> and not that good either. <laughs> Dude, that shit was annoying <laughs> <laughs> but um, what do you call it sorry was funny man and he was like nothing you've ever met in your life this dude I'm out, around a bunch of marines damn well knowing what the reaction would be would put on Backstreet Boys and, and do like a choreographed practiced fucking dance <laughs> that you would expect like the Backstreet Boys to do
8: So after like one hour, two hours, I don't remember exactly, one hour, two hours in that school, we went back to those positions. Then I had a discussion with the NBC guys, and I told them, listen, let's split up. I told them, you know, like, because I, I, I think that, you know, if something's going to happen tonight or anytime, you know, it's going to happen in that school. So I would like to be there.
2: He does a quick interview with the company commander around 5
1: p.m. Uh, what are the biggest challenges your men are facing here in Fallujah today? That's an easy one. The biggest challenges we're facing right now are just uh, my men want to go into the city and attack the enemy. That's what Marines do. They're fired up. They want to They want to go on the assault. So I, I've got to hold back on the reins to keep them here, uh, keep them uh, from doing that until we're, we're given permission to do so. And... Uh... Of course, I
8: informed uh, CNN headquarters in in Atlanta that I will call them every two hours. And in between, I will be, I had like, I don't know, four or five uh, uh, extra batteries, but I had no idea how long I'm going to stay in Fallujah. So I said, listen, I will not have it switched on. I will turn it on every two hours.
5: And I mean, right before we got to rest and the incident happened, that I actually ran to go get the MREs and everything for us to eat. So, I mean, we ran out, ran down the street, hit up uh, HQ, grabbed the MREs, came on back. I mean, just a little s- simple resupply. And then we went to stand, two. And then, I mean, yeah, right after that, that's when everything went down. It was getting dark around after six, after I make my phone
8: call. It was getting dark, and the school was on the top of a t intersection there were there were some cars blown up i saw some bodies in those cars and i noticed there were guys on that street running from one side of the street to another and they were dropping tires I
5: ran back into the alleyway then they
7: rolled out another tire, another, another tire. We kept seeing guys um, setting up tires, and they were doing what they used to do this to set up signal fires. what the hell they trying to do with those
5: fucking
7: tires. So it helped help them mortars. Um, so as they were setting up the tires and shit, our guys were shooting and whatnot. Uh, so we knew an attack was coming. Like, we, we could see that they were preparing for an attack. So they told us to be on stand two. I forget what time. That's usually like sunset. Because we were expecting the fight. So everyone was in gear. We had that going for us. Where they were putting those tires up was the same house that shot the rocket at me that morning. Okay. We wanted that house gone. We were uh we were hanging out at this picnic table that was just underneath an awning that was on the side of the courtyard. And some people were sitting down. I was standing, shooter was standing. And uh shooter had gotten a uh, A mail package. Like, he'd he'd gotten some mail with some pictures and shit. So he was showing us pictures of his family and his friends, which was Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. And uh, earlier that day, this is a little separate, but it's connected. Earlier that day, I was with Schmidt, and I saw that he had (laughs) Pop-Tarts. So I started begging him for some Pop-Tarts because we'd we'd been in... You know, doing this for like ten days or whatever. You miss stupid things. And uh so the, the the we got done negotiating and I was like, I I the, the deal was I would give him an already freaked black and mild. Like you know when you pull out the inside paper of a black and mild and then you put it back together?
3: I do not know so. that. Is it like making it black, uh, but yeah. like Well, it's not making them blunt. I mean, the
7: the principle is similar. Yes. But uh the black and miles are cheap. But they suck in taste. If you take out the inside leaf, though, Mm -hmm. the taste is actually smooth as shit. It's something weird about Black and Miles that us poor kids figured out. (laughs) Uh, So that was the deal, as I would give him an already freaked Black and mile in exchange for the Pop-Tarts. And uh, so while we're all bullshitting, it was me, um, Doug Hyanga, Brad Shooter. Uh, who was it? Costello. Um, I think that was it. And Smith walks over and he's like, yo, Doc, he's like, where's my black and mild at? And I was like, all right, man, let me let me go do that. I haven't done that yet. So like, I'm walking away with Shooter and we're bullshitting about, we're like finishing up our conversation about Tahoe. And I left him in the center of the courtyard as we had our conversation and I went to walk into the fucking casualty collection point. Like our, the Corman's room. And uh, I had taken like not even two complete steps. And uh, like, I remember seeing a flash in a corner of my eye and I looked back and the next thing I know I'm, I'm on the ground waking up. Like I, I blacked out. I got thrown across the room. I hit a wall. Uh, I was wearing my helmet, but I hit the wall head first. And, uh, fucking. Yeah, I came too. It was all fucking uh, sorry. I'm bugging a little bit. I want to hit my weed, but uh, it was like I could see nothing. You know, it was just dust, and uh, all I could hear was ringing. It was extreme ringing, in both my ears, and then uh, suddenly. All of my hearing came back, like the rush of a fucking train. It was like, and then I could hear everything. And it was just screaming, like the worst screaming you ever heard in your life.
2: Ahead on taking cover, that explosion, what was it? We thought it was an Iraqi rocket and they just got lucky with a pinhole shot one round and the chaos the scramble to help the wounded amid a massive firefight all hell broke loose um
8: there there was fire coming out of everywhere there was uh, a lot of machine gun fire a lot of rpg fire the building was shaken by some of the grenades
2: that hit the building on the rockets here's the thing this explosion at the schoolhouse in fallujah it should be in the history books as the worst marine-on-marine-friendly fire incident in decades. But it isn't. It's like it was scrubbed from the record. They said he died. I never knew his name. I can't find any
4: document. He didn't go with me. Somebody took him out. Nowhere in this fucking investigation you see that. as a, a sin. As we continue digging up
3: parts of this story, we have to wonder, why did the Marine Corps keep all of this hidden for so long? Why are we the ones revealing what really happened to the very men who were there?
2: I mean, your instincts, I think, are correct. And those questions should be answered. But the worst thing in the world to happen is to break that bond of trust between us and the public, the mothers and fathers who send their sons to war.
3: Taking Cover is created and reported by us, Graham Smith and Tom Bowman. Our producer is Chris Haxel. Robert Little is the editor, with help from Kamala Kelker. To hear our next episode early, sign up for Embedded Plus at plus.npr.org slash embedded, or find the Embedded channel in Apple. You'll be supporting our work, and you'll get to listen to the entire season sponsor-free. That's Plus. Dot .npr.org slash embedded. And thanks to everyone who's already signed up and listening early. We have production help from Nick Nevis. Our music comes from Peter Duchesne, Rob Groswell, Brad Honeyman, and the Hump Muscle Rolling Circus. Sound designed by Josh Rogesen and me, with help from Nick. This episode was engineered by Josh Newell. Our researcher is Barbara Van Workum. We've had additional editorial input from Leanna Simstrom, who is the Enterprise Storytelling Unit's supervising producer. Also from the supervising editor for Embedded, Katie Simon, as well as Christopher Turpin, Andrew Sussman, and Bruce Oster. We are also grateful for guidance
2: and encouragement from Lisa Hagen, Chip Brantley, and Andrew Beck-Grace. Edith Chapin is the Acting Senior Vice President of NPR News, Irene Noguchi is the Executive Producer of NPR's Enterprise Storytelling Unit, and Anya Grundman is the Senior Vice President for Programming and Audience Development. We'd like to thank and acknowledge Eric Nealer and Rick Loomis, journalists who were in Fallujah during the fighting in the spring of 2004 and who shared their recordings with us, and also NPR member station KPBS and CNN. And finally, thanks to the men who shared their stories with us. In addition to those named in the episode, we heard from Jason Duty, Tony Paz, Everett Watt, John Smith, Chris Covington, and Ben Wagner. We'll be hearing more from them ahead.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise.